Welcome to Tramlines, a podcast from Agri. I'm your host, Tony Smith, putting your questions to the experts. In this episode, I'm talking to Marit Nowakowski, wildlife expert and consultant to Agri. Today, here we are near Bicester, out on farm, and today we're going to be talking about ELMS, the new environmental land management schemes, and what does it mean for our wildlife and what we need to do on our farms as farmers and growers in the UK. So, good afternoon, Marek. Good afternoon, Tenny. Well, it's, it's great to be back, and here we are again in, uh, in sunny Bicester, and it's, uh, it, it really is a, a terrific spot, uh, and I'm sure as listeners can, uh, can hear, uh, that sort of hush in the background is actually uh, the M40 motorway. But, yeah, but, uh, but it's, it's delightful just here. It, it drowns out the wildlife, Marek, absolutely right. So, look, let's start off with Elms. Um, What's your view on Elms in terms of its relevance to you and your consulting from an environmental and wildlife perspective? Being as honest as I can be, I am a little frustrated how little we've learned over the last five to six years. Um, I do see change as as something that is necessary. Um, What I would say to many of my farmers is Let's go into the old scheme, the mid-tier, because we know it, understand it, we know what money we're going to get, we know what being asked to do, and the new mid-tier schemes are for five years, not ten years. During that five years, we'll put our ear to the ground, we'll look, we'll learn, and we'll begin to understand more about the various ELM schemes. At this moment in time, I think it's a bit too early to judge ELM, and certainly a bit too early to say to farmers, you know, you're going to jump off the highest board in the swimming pool blindfolded because it has been a difficult challenge for DEFRA. It comes on the back of um, leaving Europe. It comes on the back of the decline in the basic payment scheme. So it really has been the perfect storm. So what I'm saying to my farmers is let's stick with what we know let's learn that however you work this it is the quality and the type of habitat that will deliver the biodiversity the old scheme or even the new scheme wants Um, we've got to move away from area payment elm says that it will be a lighter touch there will be more support more training more advice and and um we're led to believe that this draconian sort of punishment and and, and fining is now something that that, that's buried in the past Um, but what we've got to do now change has to happen we have to recognize that we've perhaps paid um, unintentionally a fairly high price for what is referred to as cheap food and biodiversity has been the casualty it is quite possible to feed people but not at the expense of the countryside um, an elm hopes to achieve that um, that golden challenge, that holy grail. But at the moment, there is quite a small amount of information farmers can act on. There's the soil bit in the sustainable farming incentive. Um, over and above that, we're not really sure what's happening. And certainly the sand is running through the hourglass and there seems to be an urgency. Um, Having spent my life working both as an agronomist, so on the commercial side, but with a lot of environmental scientists, I've had, a, if you like, 
Um, I wear welly boots and a white coat, so I sit with a foot in both camps. I have a genuine concern, and I have expressed it to, to organisations like DEFRA, that if we travel commercially too fast and leave the science behind, we'd have to be absolutely sure we were going in the right direction. I begin to see that commercial opportunity is driving policy, and I suppose this is the, if you like, the, the sort of the scientist in me. I'm not sure that's the safest way to travel. Yeah, thanks, Marek. And I think there's, there's real clarity in your answer, although we don't have the clarity, if that sort of makes sense. So tell us a little bit about some of the initiatives that you've been consulting on over the last few years, because uh, I know just now you were telling me about some terrific results that actually have really yielded not just a wildlife benefit, but a financial benefit for those, those clients. So uh, give us one or two examples, because maybe that'll help us to be ready for when we do know that detail. Yeah, I mean, the farm that we've been on this afternoon, um, and you're seeing the wildlife, is coming out of the old higher level scheme. The farmer said to me, Marek, I want to go into Elm. We looked at as much of Elm as we knew, <laughs> knew and it wasn't a great deal. So we plumped for the mid-tier scheme. We sat down with somebody that is very confident in filling in the forms of the mid-tier scheme, and we chose the habitats that most suited the farm and continued the development of what the old higher level scheme had done. And what we're gonna do now is build on what the farm has already achieved. And in that five year period, when the new scheme they're going into, the mid-tier, uh, when that ends in five years time, hopefully then Elm will have given us a bit more information that we can consider, press the pound note signs and work it all out on. But I, I feel at the moment, the farmers are under so much financial pressure and the need to change environmentally leaping into the unknown might just be a little premature at this stage we do know that we have to farm wildlife exactly the same as we farm crops uh, sounds an odd thing to say but but if we take the word farm out and say we know we have to manage crops we know we have to manage wildlife and what i'm hoping we'll see in elm is an approach that builds on where the old schemes have come from Okay, and so thinking about some of those specific initiatives, as we said, that you've been consulting on, you mentioned this farm here where it's been clearly a very, very successful plan. And in fact, actually, just walking along this track, you can, you can just sense that the level of insect uh, activity that's going on. I know it's a sunny day, but it's terrific. Um, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Is it? We're walking past dandelions and, we, and, and uh, let's make some reference to them. The farmer sees those as wildflowers now, not weeds, because he knows what uses them. Now, once the farmer has made that connection and become engaged, has built the confidence and the skills, and then we can pick and choose what's on offer in the Elm menu over the next five years, I think there is a resistance from farmers to jump into the unknown, though DEFRA wants us into the new scheme as soon as possible. I think uh, the discerning farmer will say, well, I'm gonna spend five years in the old scheme but i'm going to look at the new options very carefully what i can't afford to do is to jump too soon and jump in the wrong direction now uh, sure um in terms of this specific farm uh we just walked up to the field just by the orseed rape there and we could see that sort of wildlife area that corner tell us a little bit about 
the benefit that that's brought the farm? Because it, it's quite significant, isn't it, in terms of you know machinery working in that corner and you know the 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 cost balance between environment, wildlife, and the farm performance. So, talk us through the benefits of that corner of that field. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it's a it's a corner on a slope that faces south. So immediately, insects will begin to congregate there because it's warm and it's protected. So if we have a multitude of wildflowers there in what used to be the old wildflower corner, sadly that's now gone in the new schemes, but the, from a farmer's point of view, you start by saying, give me the bits you don't want to farm for whatever reason. And you then plug the right habitats into those bits and then there is some debate between me and the farmer on how we fill in some of those gaps. I mean, insects, for example, don't fly hundreds of miles from, from where they live to where they're going to feed. So we have to make sure that these islands of pollen and nectar are close enough together. Now, in the new scheme, I would like to see more emphasis placed on habitat type and position rather than just go out and sow a wildflower mix. We do know and um, I'm working very hard with the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology to look at the right flowers to benefit the right insects that go out and nosh their way through crop pests. Now, therefore, there's a, there's a double whammy for Mr. Farmer. He can get a benefit from the wildflowers because there's a grant. If it attracts insects that go out and do battle with crop pests, then it, 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 it's a win-win. And I think that Elm just need that little bit longer, says he very hopefully, to refine their offers to farmers. At the moment, the business deal, the offer from DEFRA, is something farmers haven't immediately warmed to because the devil's in the detail and we don't have the detail yet. No, sure, but I, c I can very much hear that you, you in the back of your mind have, have got a, a bit of a wish list there as to what you'd like to see in that detail as it emerges. Just bring it into the, the modern world and the cost of diesel and working land What's the benefit, Marek, just purely, forgetting Elms for one second, of you know, sacrificing that corner of that field where maybe there's a bit more clay in the soil, it's a bit wetter, and just creating a little bit of a better habitat for wildlife? What, what's the, the, the cost-benefit payoff there? In the old scheme, what we were looking at was Mr Farmer saying, it's very difficult for me to get into that corner with the farm machinery I've got. By the time I've got in there and turned round, I've sort of compacted the whole thing. Um, so you'd look at the scheme and you'd say it's going to cost you, and I'm guessing with figures, it's going to cost you £600 to put it to a, uh, a wildflower mix. That would be your grant. I'm going to spend perhaps 600 quid in the first year cultivating it, sowing it, etc. But then for the next five years, there will be one mowing a year for which I'm going to get £600 a year. So it becomes a good deal. It, it makes business sense. What I think that... Um, Elm is trying to do now is to say right on top of habitat creation we now have to have a better understanding on carbon capture, soil structure, clean air, clean water and it is a fairly daunting task to try and ask for habitats to deliver on all of those in one go and I think that where DEFRA might well end up is reigning their, um, reigning their ambitions in a bit. There, there is not one habitat that fits all. So there might be greater emphasis on protecting water quality, 
by having wider field margins so that, that, that we don't get, if you like, agricultural activities going into the water. Clean air um, is one I'm not overly familiar with. Carbon capture is now on everybody's lips and certainly reducing cultivations. We now have regenerative agriculture. We have a whole variety of new names. But one of the things that DEFRA and farmers can learn from is we're so close going back to the mixed farm that I was familiar with in, in the late 60s, early 70s. So don't let's lose the skills and the knowledge and maybe DEFRA fish into those and then update those rather than invent the wheel again. Um, whilst, you've still got <laughs> whilst you've still got some old folk about, go and interview them and take their knowledge straight into the new scheme because they think there's a lot to be learnt in relationship to um, improving organic matter, mixed farming, less cultivation, etc. And then I think Elm have <coughs> a much greater chance uh, of achieving a fairly big ask of the farm countryside because they want to do all the old things and a whole plethora of new ones. I mean, that's what Elm wants to do. And it's all driven by the 25-year environmental plan, w w which is a huge chunk of legislation that is a very bold step forward. Yeah, and, and I completely concur with your, uh, your, your comment there about... <laughs> You said talk to the older folk to learn from their experience. Marek, you're a youngster the way you're striding up and down this track, but, but you've taught me so much, you know, just from just walking along. You can't stop but point out, let's just see if we can hear him. The, bee, the bee's gone. Oh, well, it'll probably come back and there we are. Um, but no, there's so much to learn from people's experiences and particularly in agriculture where, you know, it, it's uh, one season is, is a very short period of time. Uh, Marek, tell us a bit about the other case that you were sharing with me, which is about the farmer that's really turned uh, generating wildlife habitats into an income. Uh, I think down um, on the Chiltern yeah, on somewhere. The Chiltern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've worked with this particular farmer for 30 years. Um, what was fascinating there, he saw me on a television programme. Um, he then contacted me through the BBC and said, I want you to be my agronomist, but I want you to help me do the wildlife because that's a passion of mine and he made a very bad mistake. He asked me to put the wildlife back on his farm and he wrote the checks for the doing of it. Um, as Andrew's agronomist, um, and I hope he's not casting aspersions on my agronomic skills, because he was on very thin chalky soil, profitable yields were damn nearly impossible to get. So we looked at farming the best land. Um, a large part of his farm is into Christmas trees. And then we took about 150 acres, which would be half his arable farm, and we stuck it 30 years ago into a variety of different wildflower meadows. Now, if everybody that did that, we'd go very hungry. But from Andrew's point of view, me as an agronomist that does crop agronomy and wildlife agronomy, saw this as the right business sense. And this is something that Agri, I, I, I think developing new skills in and, and setting a bit of a trend. If the agronomist can do both wildlife farming and crop production farming, then that has to be the perfect marriage. Yeah, that sounds really good. Uh, and in fact, actually, while we've been here today, uh, the agri-agronomist has been on the, the other side of the field yeah. uh, doing his field walking. So uh, there you are. Uh, there's that happy marriage, so to speak. Um, Marit, just, just thinking in terms of, 
you know, the learns that we can take from listening today. Um, yes, with Elms, some of the detail is missing, and I know that's frustrating many. But you've got so much experience in terms of consulting farmers with their wildlife initiatives and what they're doing on farms. Uh, what would be your, your, your two top tips for farmers and agronomists, anyone listening today, to sort of take away and think about um, on this journey? Ha, gosh, I wish I knew. Um, you've got to want it to work. As a farmer, you've actually got to want to succeed in this marriage between farming and wildlife. Uh, and that, re that relates, I think, to, to training. That relates to perhaps the agronomist or somebody on the farm being educated in the possibilities of, of moving forwards. The other bit is, it's got to make commercial sense. A farmer is, or agriculture, isn't yet a national charity. It's getting pretty close to it. But at the end of the day, if it makes good business sense and you understand why it's important and begin to enjoy it, then you're going to start getting results. In the past, there has been the emphasis on area payment. That used to be called set-aside. Now we're stepping into this whole new arena, but the agronomist who is the man on the farm from the outside world has to be confident and begin to educate and, and, and if I could say, infect the farmer with his enthusiasm. So Mr. Farmer sees this complementary system not being something that's antagonistic. It's got to make sense financially. You've got to want to do it. And above all else, you've got to know how to do it. And then something that DEFRA have played around with, but, but sadly I don't think is going to happen. If we go back to the system they have tried, which is payment by results, um, the level of delivery from farmers will go up quite dramatically. And, and as a note, uh, what I've seen today, and I, I always um, sense with you, Mary, is your absolute passion uh, for what, what you're trying to do, which is enhance the environment for all the bugs, beetles and pollinators and, and beyond. But what I also sense is actually that many of your clients talk about the fact that they enjoy their farms more. Uh, tell me a bit about that passion that you see, you know, in, in your clients when they, when they see that habitat improving. I've never seen a conflict between farming and wildlife. You can have both. I've been lucky enough to work with many of the, the top scientists in the country to, to try and seek out where this balance is um, and I think that, that because I love it and I've seen it work uh, getting farmers engaged I don't find too difficult um, those skills need passing on but at the end of the day unless we can have an integrated system where wildlife thrives on a profitable farm we're actually not going to make the progress the 25-year environmental plan expects farmers to do Thank you, Marek. As always, very interesting listening to your advice and learning a little bit more about the wildlife on our farms and what we can do to make a difference that can also bring a benefit to our farm businesses. Do have a listen to our other podcasts on tramlines that also focus on elms. That's it for this podcast, but do tune in again as we meet the experts throughout the season, exploring the many immediate and longer-term questions for growers and farmers in the UK. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask the experts, email info at agri.co.uk. See you next time.